0: Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obeltz, and today is Tuesday, June 20, 2023. It has been 3,401 days since Russia occupied the Crimea Peninsula in January 27, 2014, and one year and 116 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. Today I'll be discussing two topics. First, the next phase of Ukraine's offensive started roughly two weeks ago. Russia has already declared the offensive over and a failure. Ukraine says the operation continues going as planned. I'll share the thoughts of our analyst team. Part two will cover the Russian Federation Armed Forces' growing employment of vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices, or VBIEDs. What are they? Why are they used in warfare? And what does Russia using them tell us? Is the Ukrainian offensive going to plan? This segment is purely assessment because the only people that know if things are actually going to plan are the attendees of the Ukrainian Supreme Commander-in-Chief Stavkas in Kyiv with President Zelensky, and we're not sitting at that table. Let's start with what we know. And one disclaimer: the Bakhmut operational area is not part of this conversation. The first phase of the Ukrainian summer offensive, which included kinetic warfare started in late March. There was a sharp increase in the suppression and destruction of Russian electronic warfare capabilities, radar installations, air defenses, and Russian artillery batteries. Around April 18, Ukrainian forces occupied the dachas on the left bank of the Dnipro River near the remains of the Antonovsky Bridge. Russian mill bloggers started complaining about the Ukrainian presence on April 20th. And by mid-May, Russian video showed a company-sized detachment was freely operating in that area. We have always maintained that it was extremely unlikely that Ukraine would attempt a brigade-sized amphibious assault across the Dnipro River due to the high risk and complexity of amphibious operations. Also by mid-May, we started to see a shift in Ukrainian tactics, moving from active defense, to small offensive operations of platoon and company-sized units conducting reconnaissance, reconnaissance in force, and probing attacks, basically everywhere. When weakness in Russian defenses was found, it was exploited, and Ukraine made some tactical gains. On June 4, there was another shift, with Ukrainian forces launching attacks involving up to two companies in the area of Orihiv and Nova Novosilka, and probing attacks in the area of Wolyapole. What we didn't see were large artillery barrages, which would typically come before a large-scale offensive and breaching attempt. We didn't see a sharp increase in airstrikes, even within the context of the capabilities of the Ukrainian Air Force, or a significant deployment of Ukraine's newly formed armored and mechanized infantry brigades. We want to be right over first, so we were reluctant to state, this is it, the big offensive has started. Over the last two weeks, what we've observed could be described as shaping operations or subordinate operations to the main attack, which hasn't started yet. In the Velike-Novosilka area, Ukrainian forces have liberated six settlements, advanced seven to eight kilometers in depth, and liberated about 100 square kilometers of territory. In the Orohiv operational area, Ukrainian forces have liberated two settlements, advanced to three kilometers in depth and liberated about 20 square kilometers of territory. The Russian Ministry of Defense, state media, and every pro-Russian account have shared the videos and pictures of the same tanks and infantry fighting vehicles lost between June 4 and 10 from multiple camera angles. We provided an assessment of what went wrong in that attack, and we've already observed some adjustments and tactics. In preparing for today's podcast, we analyzed the Sentinel-2 2 LA satellite false color imagery which was encouraging. Has Ukraine's summer offensive started? Yes, it was already starting in late March. Is what we are seeing today the main part of the offensive? We're not sitting at the Stavka, but in our assessment, no. Now, let's move to pure assessment. The Russian Ministry of Defense and the Russian Information Space latched on to the Institute for Study of War's June 17 report, stating that Ukrainian forces had entered an operational pause to evaluate their tactics. See? Failure. Great Russian victory. In Kherson, the Kremlin made a similar claim after Ukrainian forces met tough resistance in October. See? Failure. Three weeks later, the Russian general staff planned a goodwill gesture to cross the Dnipro River. Ukraine's combat potential isn't close to exhausted. As of this recording, Only three of at least nine new armored and mechanized infantry brigades have been deployed, and we've only seen a fraction of the heavy weapons provided to Ukraine in the theater of war. Russia destroyed 16 Bradley fighting vehicles, and the United States is providing 15 more from a fleet of 6,600. It's the same situation for the losses of Leopard 2 tanks, with newly pledged equipment exceeding those losses. No, the summer offensive is not over, and Ukraine's military is not combat destroyed. Let's move to Kiev. Is everything going to plan? Pure assessment. That also seems unlikely. If you're listening to this and you were expecting something that looked like the Kharkiv counteroffensive in September of 2022, that was never the plan. At least we hope not. Russia's had months to prepare the occupied territories to hold those territories. The second thing is the defender's bonus. We've discussed this in podcasts. And share this in our written situation reports: A combatant conducting offensive operations on prepared defenses will suffer more casualties than a defender. The attacking force needs a ratio of three to one to seven to one, depending on many factors, to have a successful operation. Ukraine has been on defense since November 12, 2022, and until April 18, 2023. Many have been accustomed to seeing Ukrainian forces destroying Russian troops and armor, advancing on prepared Ukrainian defenses. It is shocking to suddenly see destroyed Ukrainian equipment as they move to offensive operations. This is war. Equipment will get destroyed. Soldiers will die. The situation appears worse because Ukraine is maintaining very tight operational security. So who is controlling the public information space? Russia. There was a pause in fighting, and one possible reason is a pause to adjust tactics. This is not a call out of the Institute of Study of War, which has a better track record than many other sources. Another reason could be as simple as heavy rain and severe thunderstorms that moved through southern Ukraine, which impacted drone operations and caused some tractability issues. Another possibility is that Ukrainian forces were consolidating their gains, or in our assessment, it's a combination of all of the above. How do we determine reality if the general staff in Kyiv only shares very limited information and Russian sources control the information space? There is one data point in the Ukrainian information space where we are seeing the largest number of videos since late March 2022. Russian prisoners of war. Every day we are seeing three to six new and unique videos of Russian troops being taken prisoner. What does that tell our analysts? It indicates that Ukrainian forces are overrunning Russian positions and taking small groups of Russian troops into encirclement. That wouldn't be happening if Ukrainian forces weren't advancing. There is success on the battlefield, but around Orahiv, the general staff in Kiev was likely expecting more. If you follow us on TikTok, you may remember that I put a prediction in a sealed envelope of where I personally believe the main offensive for Ukraine will strike. I haven't opened that envelope yet because we haven't seen the main offensive. I want to take one more moment to talk about Bakhmut. It wouldn't be incorrect to consider the ongoing fighting on the northern and southern flanks as part of the larger Ukrainian offensive. But Ukraine hasn't dedicated significant new resources in this area. And on May 20, when Yevgeny Prigozhin announced mission accomplished, even though it wasn't, most analysts, not just our team, expected Ukraine to continue fighting here. Ukrainian forces continue to advance south and north of Bakhmut, and the interesting area is on the northern flank in the Solodar operational area. Russia's been forced to move reserves here, which they probably didn't want to do. Ukrainian forces continue their attacks and added a third direction over the weekend, north of Solodar. Is there a larger strategy here that could be a subordinate attack to the main offensive? The chance is never zero, but we believe Ukraine is seeking a strategic kinetic victory, not a political one. Retaking Bakhmut and Solodar and then stopping would be more of a political victory. If we distill the last two weeks for Ukraine and Russia to a letter grade or a college GPA, they both get a C plus or a three. if you're expecting a crushing blow and hundreds of tanks rolling across the steppe supported by a surprise air force of secret F16s you're going to need to temper your expectations it's going to be a long summer when you cut through the fog of war you will usually find the truth sitting in the middle which is where we believe it is <laughs> In the last 72 hours, Russian forces have launched multiple vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices at Ukrainian positions. Towards the end of the Russian winter offensive, there were two such attacks in the Kramina operational area. This appears to be an escalation of this tactic. What is a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device? A vehicle is filled with explosives and driven to a target either remotely by dumb means such as a brick on the gas pedal Guided by a driver who evacuates at the last minute, or a suicide attack. Of the four incidents that have been documented in the last 72 hours, two appear to have used dumb means, and in the other two, the driver jumped out at the last minute. Russian troops used a T 55 tank, what appeared to be a damaged Ukrainian tank, and two MTLB armored fighting vehicles. A fifth MTLB near Opuitne, the one by Donetsk International Airport was destroyed by a drone and appears to have been prepared to be used as a vehicle-borne IED. It is unknown what explosives were packed into these vehicles, but in Kremina, Russian troops shared a picture showing that they were using TM-62 anti-tank landmines. They're cheap, plentiful, and stable without their detonators. Vehicle-borne IEDs are used when a combatant is fighting an asymmetrical war. They lack heavy weapons, aircraft, or armor, to effectively engage their enemy. For what was believed to be the second most powerful military on the planet before February 24, 2022, this is an unusual tactic to employ. At least at the company level, Russian commanders believe they are fighting an asymmetrical war and employing tactics used against them in Syria and Chechnya. Veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan know all too well about vehicle-borne IEDs. It is unclear how effective these attacks are, and historically, Ukraine has not eagerly provided bomb battle damage assessment in the public information space. That isn't a bad thing. Russian state media continues to provide too much information after Ukrainian attacks, which frequently lead to follow-up strikes if the mission objective wasn't achieved. So far... The vehicle-borne IED attacks deployed by Russia appear to be only designed to cause casualties and have not been followed with a ground attack. Additionally, the attacks have been a single vehicle. More purposeful attacks would use two vehicle-borne IEDs, one to cause a breach and disorientation, and the second one to hit the actual assigned target. We've covered how Russian artillery ammunition shortages are artificial, and more related to their military doctrine. Unable to meet the needs of commanders who were taught to use approximately 2,000 artillery rounds per day for each square kilometer they're targeting versus Western doctrine, which is X number of shells to destroy a specific target, vehicle-borne IEDs may be their answer to a lack of fire support. Another issue for Russian forces is the shrinking role of traditional close-air support on the 21st century battlefield. Air defense density in Ukraine is high, and Russian Army Aviation and Air Force lack standoff precision weapons, requiring riskier routes of attack. They're reluctant to make these attacks. The challenge for Ukrainian defenders is striking an armored vehicle carrying tons of landmines to prevent it from crashing into their defensive position, but it still creates a massive explosion. Well-constructed reinforced trenches should be sufficient to protect from severe blasts if the vehicle-borne IED is intercepted at an adequate range. Any Ukrainian anti-tank crew that is exposed while firing on that vehicle is at a lot of risk. While these types of attacks appear to be expanding, if the success rate is low, the loss of vehicles and the mass consumption of mines will likely cause an end to this tactic. It is unfathomable to believe that Russian forces will expand their attacks to the point of suicide missions. Historically, when a professional military adopts these kinds of tactics, but at scale, it is a sign of fanaticism meeting the reality of shrinking combat potential. Militaries are always working on swords versus shields. Tactics to deal with vehicle-borne ID attacks and how to build defenses and tactics that prevent and neutralize them are well-established and they're not military secrets closing thoughts if you had said in june 2022 that russia would be employing these types of attacks on well-entrenched heavily armed ukrainian positions because russia lacks the artillery ammunition to support its military doctrine that would have been incredibly hard to believe We know many of you are missing the Daily Situation Report update in the podcast format, and I want to thank our audience for standing with us during this transition. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to the written Daily Situation Report and Interim Flash Reports. There's a link in the podcast description, or you can find us by searching for Malcontent News on Patreon. It keeps you in the know during this transition to a new host and backs the rest of the team. And that's what we know. Thank you for listening, and we'll get through this together. My name is David Obelts. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. There's so much awful in the world. Please be good to each other. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.